Amen. Well, good evening to all of you. Nice to be with you in one way or another, either for the few of us in the building or for others who are online. You know, it's just striking me that it is so critical that we continue to worship through uh, this COVID-19 crisis. It's just critical. We need to um, take care of our physical bodies and watch out for each other's physical bodies. That's why we do these precautions. It's wise, right? So we want to follow along with that fully. We want to be the best at doing that. But we also want to recognize that we are more than physical bodies, right? We have emotions, we have relationships, we have a spirit and a soul, and we need to feed those things as well. And so worship is just a powerful way for us to soak in God's presence together, even if it's just with two or three in our home, uh, and, to, and to do that, and know that others, other followers of Jesus around the world are doing the same thing. We're tied together, even if we're not in the same room. That's a wonderful truth. And then also, it's critical to be in community. And I don't mean a whole bunch of people necessarily in one place. Community is relationship, and that can happen, thankfully, with technology in so many different ways. So we're going to be leaning heavily on technology, right? I'm sure that FaceTime's going to go through the roof and all sorts of other things that we do. So let's stay connected in community. That's really critical, that we take precautions, but we support each other during this season. So we're talking about spiritual family tonight, right? We're in our third of three sermons on this topic. And it might sound like, okay, that's the wrong topic. You know, hanging out together, having potlucks together, that's just the wrong topic. Um, and obviously, we want to do it in, in the ways that are appropriate for this current season. But please hear the heart of this tonight. Spiritual family is critical, especially during these times. So let's jump in and see where this goes. It was about five years ago that I stood before a group of people, and I verbalized something that would have a profound impact on my personal relationship with Jesus and on how I viewed discipleship, which is just following Jesus. And the word that I verbalized was this, integration. And if that doesn't strike you as profound, that's okay. It was for me, and I'll tell you more a little, uh, in a bit why. But it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Now, I've been studying this idea that Jesus had created a new kind of spiritual family. He didn't just do Lone Ranger uh, kind of teaching and leading with a few people tagging along. He went in and he created a spiritual family, and together that spiritual family was on mission. So I'm exploring this, and I'm fascinated by how he trained his disciples within that spiritual family context. Discipleship was the heart of his spiritual family. But then it struck home to me very personally. I wasn't doing this in my own life. I mean, hardly at all. And here I was, I've been a pastor here at Center Street in some overseeing various discipleship ministries for the last 17 years plus. And, and there's some good stuff we have in discipleship. And I was growing in some of those areas, but this particular aspect of discipleship was not part of my experience, my personal life. I'd primarily done discipleship through biblical knowledge and practical skills. And those are really important. Those are critical. But this idea of being in a spiritual family and of discipling people in that context, well, that was just something that wasn't part, of, again, of my experience. And it really, really struck me with a powerful awareness in that moment when I said that word integration. I want more of this. I want more. You know, back in the first century Israel, uh, it was common for there to be rabbis and disciples wandering around uh, the countryside, wandering through the cities. This was a common experience uh, that went on there. And they had a special relationship. The rabbi was the teacher, right? And the disciples, the word literally means learner. 
So they were the learners, and they would follow uh, their rabbi, and they would listen to everything that the rabbi said. And they would take down every word, and they would argue and debate later what had he actually said and what had he meant. And then they would watch what the rabbi did, and they would do it with the rabbi. And then this third part was a new part that I hadn't known before. They would actually be in the rabbi's life and watching how the rabbi interacted in every single context of life that the rabbi was in. How's he going to respond to this situation? What's he doing there? There's a rabbinical blessing that illustrates this kind of close relationship. May you follow your rabbi. May you drink in his words. May you be covered in his dust. I mean, the covering in the dust doesn't sound so appealing to me, but the idea was, I mean, it's a dusty place, right? Walking around the roads of Palestine. And so the idea was that you're so close to your rabbi that the dust that he kicks up from his sandals doesn't even have time to settle to the ground. It settles on you instead. That's how close you are. And Jesus' disciples learned lots from his teaching and his actions because they followed him so closely. But they also learned a lot from Jesus' way of life. What was his way of life? Well, they wanted to know. Jesus, how do you pray? They wanted to know how he related to his father. They wanted to know how he related to other people, right? The, the outcasts and the sinners and the marginalized people. They wanted to know how he interacted with people who were expressing legalism. They wanted to know how he interacted in all sorts of situations. And they really wanted to know how he was discipling them. And that impacted them greatly so they could then turn around and disciple others in the same way that Jesus had discipled them. And that was in the context of a spiritual family on mission. So again, I hadn't done much of this at all. I had no spiritual context to invite people into. I had done a lot of one-to-one discipleship, and that's still good. I hope to still do that for many years to come. But that was one of my only ways of really discipling uh, somebody. I didn't have a spiritual family to bring them in and be a part of that. So Jesus was inviting and challenging me to change my way of discipling and to broaden it, to expand it, to include all of his way of discipling. So in this sermon series that we've been doing on Matthew 4, we're going to do a really quick review of the last two sermons and messages, and then we're going to move into our our passage for tonight. Two weeks ago, Bob Roglin was here, and he taught on Matthew 4, 12 to 17. And if you were here, you saw lots of maps and and pictures of, of, uh, of Israel and of where Jesus walked and how Jesus started um, down in his baptism and his temptation down near Jerusalem, just east of Jerusalem. And then after that, he went back up to Nazareth, and he was in Nazareth, but he was rejected there in his hometown. So he went to Capernaum, stayed with Simon, Peter, and Andrew. And that's where in their household, he started a new spiritual family on mission. And he did something unusual in that culture. He took the doors of their oikos, or their household, uh, their extended family, and he burst it wide open at night. Usually they locked the doors at night because that was their main means of protection, right? There's no police patrols or anything like that. And so that was their protection. He threw the doors open so that the people in Capernaum, the sick, the lame, the demon-possessed could come and be healed and be restored and be freed. He was showing them how to be a spiritual family on mission. Then last week, Pastor Ashwin spoke from Matthew 4, 23 to 25 about how Jesus led his new spiritual family out on mission to accomplish his purposes. And everywhere they went, they taught, people were taught, people were healed, people were encouraged, people started to follow Jesus and started to join this new spiritual family. And they would go out for a while and and travel, itinerant ministry, 
and sometimes even out to Syria and other remote places. And then they would come back to Capernaum, Jesus' new home. And then we heard from a number of people in our church who are finding different ways to experience spiritual family on mission. And it was a, we were encouraged to hear their stories and the variety of expressions of this. So that brings us up to tonight, where we're going to look at the way Jesus disciples people in this spiritual family, and we're looking at the passage in between the other two passages. So we're going to read now from Matthew chapter 4, and I just invite you to stand with me. We're going to read this together. So even at home, wherever you're at, if you're able to, please stand up. It, it shows our respect for God's word, and it's also a way for us to engage in worship. So let's read this out loud together. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Let's bow for prayer together. Jesus, thank you that you are with us wherever we are by your Spirit. We declare that truth tonight. That brings us incredible comfort and hope. We want to know more about your way. So we open up our minds right now and our spirits, just as we have through worship, through the reading of your word. We now open it up to hear, to ponder and meditate on what are you saying to us through this? What are you saying and showing us about your way of helping people to follow you and of following you ourselves in this spiritual family context? So thank you that you're going to do your work in us. In your powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, in this passage we just read, there's really only three words that we're going to focus on tonight. And those are the words, come, follow me. Now, believe it or not, there is a whole lot packed in to those words, and we're going to unpack it a bit in terms of what it means uh, to be a disciple and to disciple people in Jesus' way. Now, to dig into this, the passage we just read in Matthew is actually really brief, and thankfully we have four Gospels, so we can look at a parallel passage in Luke. So we're going to turn there now, and if you have your Bibles, just flip over to Luke chapter 3 and 4. We're going to look really briefly through there, and then land on Luke 5 and read a passage from there. So first in Luke 4, we see Jesus' baptism takes place near the Jordan River. And uh, if uh, don't Look this up right now, or I guess you can if you like, but jot it down for later. If you look at John chapter 1, it actually gives us a, a bigger unpacking of what's going on by the Jordan River. And if you're here, you can see the picture of the actual Jordan River there. Now, we know something special happened in the Jordan because that's where Jesus was baptized, right? And, and people saw, um, they heard God's the voice of the Father. They saw the Holy Spirit coming down on him. This is my son whom I love. But there's also something powerful happening on the banks of the Jordan River. And John 1 tells us about that because that's where Jesus was introduced to these guys, Simon Peter, Andrew, and likely John, although it doesn't name him, but it's John's gospel, so it's very likely him. 
And they're following John the Baptist, and John the Baptist points to Jesus, and they start following Jesus. Master, where are you staying, they say, and Jesus' response is, come and see. Right, this is all down by the Jordan, uh, by east of Jerusalem. This is not near their hometowns. So that's where they meet him, and they're already staying with him and getting to know him. They're establishing a friendship together. Then after the, after the temptation, and this is Luke 4, verse 14, Jesus travels north, and he probably travels with his three new friends because they all live up north, and they travel together, right, for protection. So they travel north, and Jesus goes a little bit further west off to uh, Nazareth, to his hometown, and we know what happens there. He gets uh, ostracized there, and he has to leave, and they go up to Capernaum because that's where they live. That's where their family business is. They're fishermen in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. So when we actually get here uh, to Luke chapter 5, he already knows Simon, Peter, Andrew, and James, and John. In fact, when he leaves Nazareth, as we said earlier, he goes to Capernaum to stay with his new friends. He's lost his biological family. His, his extended family have rejected him, at least for the time being. So he's starting and creating this new family with them. And they've been hanging out with Jesus. They've been watching and listening and learning a lot about him. And they want more. So let's pick up the story now. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. And you can just follow along as I read this for us. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and that's the same as the lake of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. And then I think there's a long pause there. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come help them. And they came and filled both boats so, so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now let's look into the scene a little more closely. So here's Jesus, and he's teaching to a crowd, and he is standing in a place known as the Sower's Cove, right? And that's the picture that you're seeing here now. This is the actual place that we believe Jesus was teaching because it's a natural amphitheater. It's really close to Capernaum. It's right close to these fishing areas. And so he's there in this amphitheater, but he wants to speak and be heard well to even more people, and there's no mic, obviously. And so he says, Simon, his, his new friend, right? Simon, let me get out in your boat a bit. And as he goes out in the water, well, now Jesus can speak in the water, right? Can kind of reflect his voice. And so even more people can hear him, even a larger crowd. And so he teaches. And then apparently he's done teaching for a while, and he says, Simon, push me out a bit to the deeper water. Let's go out there. Let's go fishing. Now, I'm a 21st century urban North American guy, really don't know anything about fishing. So that... Seems fine to me. But we've got to remember that these guys are seasoned fishermen, right? Simon, Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James and John, their father, Zebedee. They have, a, they have a business together, right? They're partners in business. And they've been doing this for years. They live in the area. They know these waters. And they know 
the best time to catch fish is in the evening and in shallow water near the shore. That's the best place and the best time to catch them. So that's why they've been fishing all night. Not because they, you know, couldn't go to sleep and had insomnia. This was their work. This was their job. And so when Jesus, who is not a fisherman by trade, what is he? Remember, he's a tectone, right? A couple weeks ago, we learned that. He's a builder, likely with stone, maybe with wood. So he's a builder. And here this this stonemason yells out to these guys, hey, let's go out to the deep waters and cast our nets in broad daylight. Isn't that a great idea? You know, and Peter's probably thinking, really nice guy. I, I, I love my new friend here. In fact, he's a man of God. He's powerful. But he's nuts about fishing. Like, it, that makes no sense whatsoever. That's why I paused, because I think Simon's going, really? So what's going on here? I think Jesus is testing Simon. Simon's his friend, and Simon's willing to serve him, use his boat as a bit of a, of a lectern of an, in the amphitheater. But will Simon be willing to become a follower? Will he be willing to surrender? And especially in the area of his greatest competence. Isn't that hard for us sometimes? We will surrender in lots of areas, but Jesus, I know what I'm doing in this area. And he's calling us to surrender, even in those areas. So what happens? Well, as we know, Simon follows this crazy advice, and there is this massive breakthrough, right? Nets are tearing, the Zebedee partners come and help, and that just makes matters worse because now there's two boats that are sinking full of fish, and they're just blown away by what's been going on. This miraculous, miraculous catch of fish becomes the breakthrough that moved these fishermen from friends of Jesus to followers of Jesus. Now they're engaging in discipleship. They're following Jesus, and they're saying, Jesus, we want you to be our rabbi. We want to be your disciples. We want to follow so close to you that your dust lands on our cloaks. We want to learn from you. We want to watch what you do, and we want to see your way of life. And so that's what they do. And this impacted every part of their lives. It impacted their families, right? I mean, it certainly impacted Peter and Andrew's family because Jesus is living in their extended family household. He's moved in, you know? And it's impacting other people. It's impacting their family business. It's impacting them because they are learning to live in this new spiritual family that Jesus is creating. And they're letting him lead them in this. They're following him. It's, it's this path of discipleship, how to be a spiritual family on mission. And then how to disciple others in the same way. So what was this way that Jesus discipled people that made this spiritual family so strong and effective? Because we know that uh, 250 or 300 years later, some historians uh, estimate that uh, the spiritual family of Jesus had grown and, multipli- and multiplied, become more spiritual families and more spiritual families, so that by that point of around 300 AD, up to half of the population of the Roman Empire are followers of Jesus. Like, that's powerful. How did this family become so strong and effective and multiply so e- effectively? Well, we're going to look at those three words now. Come and follow me. The first way Jesus discipled people was through invitation. And that's the word come. Invitation. When Jesus said come, it wasn't just an invitation to hang out with him for two hours an evening for a small group meeting. Now, a a, a once a week small group meeting is a great thing. It's a good thing. It's a great tool in a context. But Jesus was inviting them into much more than that. He was inviting them into his life. He was giving them access to his life. He was saying, let's do life together. And that's what he did with them. Whether they were on the road, whether they were at home in Capernaum, 
they were following and getting his dust and watching the way he lived his life. And after he went to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit, most of these disciples became leaders of other spiritual families, who then turned around and became leaders of other spiritual families. And it grew, like I said. And you read the book of Acts, right? Acts 2 and, and on. They met in the temple courts and in homes. And they broke bread in their homes. And they shared their possessions. They had everything in common. They're doing life together. I mean, it's a powerful thing that's going on here. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. And, and the reason I think I know that is because this is what I was thinking as I was starting to learn more about this. There is no way I've got time for this kind of stuff. There is no energy or space left in my life for a bunch of more stuff like this. I'm already exhausted. I'm doing all these things, right? We've got our jobs. We've got uh, a worship service every weekend. We've got a volunteer ministry we're a part of, maybe a community group that we're a part of, and there's school, and there's kids, and there's all sorts of things, right? I don't have time for doing life with people. That just sounds overwhelming and exhausting. I already don't have enough time with my nuclear family and my closest friends. There's no way this is doable or sustainable. Let me speak directly to this fear and to this genuine concern by saying this. Jesus had boundaries. That is really important for us, and we forget some of this stuff. He was fully human. He needed boundaries, and he had them. If you read more of Luke, you'll see that Jesus takes regular breaks to be alone. And, and in an isolated, you know, sometimes he goes to remote places, like on a mountaintop, away. It's almost like he's saying, you know, you crowds and even you 12 disciples, like, okay, I've had enough for now. I've got to go be with my father. And I just need some time with him because you, you guys are really testing me sometimes. And that would make sense. So he's off by himself. And sometimes he's with just a few people. And he's finding quiet places. He's in gardens, right? The Garden of Gethsemane. He went there regularly to pray. He's going on some retreats. He's taking a weekly Sabbath break. Jesus has boundaries. He's doing life, but doing life together with people doesn't mean having no boundaries. It means giving those in your spiritual family greater access to your life than just a once-a-week small group meeting. Now, we don't know what that means for each of us. And here's the beauty of it. I think that God is challenging us to do life with people in the way he's wired each of us to do that. You're unique. We're all unique. And he knows that. And he's not going to push us into something that doesn't fit how he's created us to be. That's beautiful. We have so much diversity in the body of Christ and in humanity. And God honors that diversity. But I think he's going to stretch you. He's going to stretch us. He's going to pull us out of our comfort zone. But he's only going to pull us out of our comfort zone in order to expand for us to become more who he's created us to be and to experience more. So that really encourages me that there are ways to actually do life together that have healthy boundaries. And besides, as Jesus' following grew, there's no way they all lived together in the same building, right? I mean, can you imagine at Center Street if we tried to do that? Let's all have a big commune together. You know, it wouldn't be a fourplex. It would be a thousandplex, whatever it would be. Like, that's not the goal here. Some of us might live in community, and that's great. But we're going to find unique ways, just like they did in the early church, to be spiritual family and to do life together. Sarah and I have been leading a spiritual family on mission, and we, we just call it a missional community, for over four years now. And as a pastoral couple involved in lots of church ministry, we had some serious concerns at first with giving more people access to our everyday lives. And i got to be honest here. It just was easier for me, and I'm a very logical person, easier for me to just go, church work, ministry work is over here, and home life and family life is over here. And let's just keep them separate. It's just simpler that way. 
just kind of maybe even build a bit of a firewall there, <laughs> right? So when I'm home, I'm home. And kind of don't bug me, right? And, and this is where Jesus was challenging me. That no, Greg, compartmentalization is not the fullness and richness of discipleship or a spiritual family. There is more. Will you trust me? Will you follow? And here's the word out that hit me. Will you follow me into a life of integration? Where ministry and mission and home and family start to come together, but in healthy ways. Okay, Jesus, let's do this. Let's try this. Let's try to figure this out. And so in this missional community, we started to do life together. And then we discovered that the majority of people in our missional community were pretty high introverts. Well, that's another challenge. What is that going to look like? Not everyone's jazzed up about a large group gathering of a potluck meal and all those things. What's this going to look like? Well, we're finding out. We're just experimenting. And we're finding there's actually a richness that introverts bring to community. It's been so cool to discover that. So we knew that God was calling us to a more integrated life with a few others as a spiritual family. And so we started doing this life together and trying it out. And other leaders from CSC who've been doing this too were teaching us, were pouring into us, we were sharing ideas. And here's just a few practical ways of what doing life together could look like. Number one, invite people into your home, but with the philosophy of welcome into my mess. Sometimes we call this grubby hospitality. In the past, Sarah and I didn't know how to have people over in a way that worked for us, and there's lots of reasons I won't go into. It was just difficult. We, we kind of had that firewall in, right? And we weren't sure what to do with this. But if the goal is to be yourself, well, hey, we can be ourselves. We can invite spiritual family into that. So here's what happens. Sarah gets migraines. If you know us well, you'll know that. She gets migraines every few days, um, sometimes not for a week, sometimes a lot in a week. So what happens if she has a migraine and has to be upstairs? Well, you know, if it was an event, we might normally say, well, sorry, Sarah's sick, and we just can't, we can't host it. Um, so we'll postpone it for next week. But we stopped doing that. Why? Well, it's because the people we were living with or inviting into our home now weren't guests. They're family. And so if Sarah's upstairs, and this has happened a couple times over the last four years, she's upstairs the whole night with a migraine in the bedroom, right? Lights are off, and she's just recovering. And I'm downstairs with everyone else. And we're engaging because we're a spiritual family. I remember one time she actually came down partway through the evening and kind of had her uh, uh, you know, hand covering her eye because the headache was on that side. So I just wanted to say hi to you guys because I, I miss you and, and chatted for a few minutes and went back upstairs. This is by inviting people into our everyday life, right? Inviting into our mess. And it's an honor to do this together. Besides all the work that we do, we all do it together anyway. So if both of us were not you know, had headaches and were upstairs. They could just, we could just leave the door unlocked. They'd come in and set things up and eat the food and, and uh, have the study and, and go home and, and do it all anyway at our place. So it's amazing what happens when you open up your home in this grubby hospitality way. Now, just a reminder, in this season of COVID-19, we want to be aware this is going to look really different. So what we're talking about today is in sort of the normalcy of life. We're in a different season. So please pay attention to that right? We want to watch out for each other. Caring for each other as spiritual family means watching and taking precautions for our physical health. So we need to do all that we need to do and, and restrict things as we need to, to make that work for us. But in time, we'll be able to go back to that meeting in and, and, and regular larger gatherings and all those things that we, that we love as being part of the family of God. So inviting people into your home. Secondly, invite people into what you're already doing. We have full calendars, but a lot of the things on our calendars, we're doing kind of on our own, right? 
What if we start inviting people into what we're already doing? What if we uh, call or text a couple of people, not everyone necessarily in the missional community, but a couple of people and say, hey, um, I, I, need some hand, uh, I need a hand building my deck or someone want to help, come help me paint my room or um, just need a clean house and would love to, or can I come help you clean your house? And we just start doing things together that we already need to do, but we're doing it as a family and doing fun things together. Going on a walk, uh, a movie, a spontaneous run to Dairy Queen to get those hot fudge sundaes with peanuts on top that I love so much. Instead of doing that by myself or just with Sarah, why don't I invite a couple of other people to join me? And we've done that. I've said, Rusty, let's go. And sometimes we've gone to DQ. So finding spontaneous ways. And even when we invite people into this and no one can do it, it's still a win. Because what happens is we're creating this culture that says we want to be in each other's lives. Thirdly, invite others to share the tough times. When something hard hits your life, the first response we want to have, the one that's going to help each of us the most, is to go to God first. We want to pray. But the second response, I think, should be go to your spiritual family. Include them in it. Bring them into it. Do life with them. When we found out long, long ago that I was going to be preaching in this weekend, it's a, a, it's a lot to preach in four services. I have a whole new respect for Pastor Henry and Pastor Ashwin and others that do this regularly. First thing we're doing is praying, and we're, we're calling and texting and emailing our spiritual family. We have so many people praying for us this weekend. It's just amazing. So you're seeing me standing up here. What you're not seeing is there's a whole spiritual family behind me, supporting me in what I'm doing tonight. It's powerful. I'll just tell that from my experience. It's a powerful feeling. So when we're in a spiritual family and something like COVID-19 hits, we're actually set up so well to be supportive of one another. We've already got the relationships. And we can now, in appropriate ways, be in each other's lives. And again, here's where technology helps so, so much. And we, and we know this when people are distant. My daughter's in Victoria. We had a good chat with her today. You know, we can, we can have long, good conversations. So we need to use these things so that we're not in isolation, maybe physically, but not emotionally and relationally. So we can experience spiritual family in all sorts of ways. Here's the amazing thing about invitation. As Sarah and I experimented with new ways of opening up our lives and our home to our spiritual family, we actually felt our lives and our load was getting lighter. Do you hear that? By, by doing life together with people, our load got lighter. And that was so counterintuitive to us. We, again, had this perception that we're doing a whole lot, we've got our yoke, right, our load, and then Jesus has another yoke over there and with a whole bunch more stuff to kind of add on. And, and that was just a wrong perception. He was inviting us to take down this wall and to let family and mission integrate and then to pick up that yoke, Jesus' yoke, and we have found it's lighter because now we have more people to support us and to regularly care for us and we're learning to do ways that fit for how God has wired each of us. Right? Sarah and I interact with our missional community in slightly different ways because we're different personalities. And as a couple, we interact with it. And instead of trying to disciple so many people individually, which, which I do a fair bit of, and I want to keep doing, but more and more, I'm able to invite people that I can disciple them within the context of our spiritual family so they can also disciple people in the same way. So that leads us to the second point and the, the last point, the way that Jesus discipled people, and that was through imitation. Jesus invited the disciples to come, but it was an invitation with a very specific goal. He wanted them to follow him to be his disciples, right? He wanted to be the rabbi and to invite them into his everyday life. And in doing that, they'd be able to imitate his life. 
So really, when you follow, you can imitate. They almost go hand in hand. Now, this word imitation has really jumped out to me a lot lately. I have always known it was in Scripture. I would have probably said it's in one or two spots in the New Testament. It's actually in many more than that. So look it up sometime and see for yourself. Let me just give you a few examples. Number one, John 13, 15. Jesus said, I have set you an example. Do as I have done for you. Jesus is saying, here's my example. Here's my model. You can imitate it. And then Paul, 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Some translations actually translate that, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then he says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 9, we did this to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. And then we get to Timothy, and here's the cool thing. Jesus has been discipling his 12, and the 12 have discipled other people in the spiritual family. They've started discipling others within the spiritual family. And eventually you get this guy, Ananias. And Ananias starts discipling this guy named Paul, or Saul, right? And he's the one that actually helps Saul get baptized. And then other people disciple Saul and Paul as well. And then it goes on from there. And now you've got Paul discipling Timothy. So here's what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 16. Paul says, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I'm sending to you Timothy. Okay, now just hit pause there. That actually makes no logical sense. Did you hear that? I want you to imitate me. So I'm sending someone else. Like what? What's going on there? Well, read the last part of the verse. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? In other words, Timothy's been doing life with me so much that if you see Timothy's way, you've seen my way. Like That's powerful imitation and, and multiplication. If you've seen Timothy's way, you've seen my way, and therefore you've seen Jesus' way because that's the way we're all following. That's, he's the one we're all imitating. So after Jesus was gone, the next generation of Jesus' followers continued to imitate his way of life, discipling people in this spiritual family on mission. And actually, well before they were called Christians, I don't know if you know this, they were called Christians first at Antioch, it says. But before that, there's a bunch of references in the book of Acts. They were called followers of the way. That was like their name, their moniker. Look, there's some more followers of the way. In fact, when Saul was persecuting the church, it says he was looking for more followers of the way. Like if they're called followers of the way, then the way must be super important. This imitation must be central to everything. They had learned to imitate Jesus' way of life. Now, we, and we tend to bypass this so quickly, but actually, if we stop and think about it, there's a lot of imitation in our culture, too. Right, think about someone who wants to be a medical doctor. Is there not a pretty intensive internship process going on? Anyone who wants to learn a trade, a mechanic or a chef or anything, right, they're, they're going to be an apprentice to someone. They're going to work under someone and learn and watch their way. Someone who wants to learn music or sports. Often, they're actually looking. Someone who wants to be really good at an instrument might try to find a master of that instrument, right? And learn to play with that master. In fact, sometimes I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong later, but I'm pretty sure that there are some people, they play and they just say, you know what, we know who that person's master was because they have a really similar style. Their way of playing is so similar. So we have imitation. For some reason, we've kept it out of the church. Let's bring it back in. Let's recognize how powerful it is. All these people get classes and books, right? We get information when we do those trades. But then we seek to apply that knowledge uh, in, in a way that shows us how to do it. It's almost like saying, you know, tell me, give me the information and then show me how. 
And that combination is so powerful. So what does imitation look like in spiritual family? What kind of discipleship is imitatable discipleship? Well, I'm going to go back to hosting a spiritual family gathering in your home. Partially because this is powerful for us and part of my story, but also because there's a different piece to this I want to share. As I already said, Sarah and I were learning a new lightweight way of hosting this. And Pam and Bob, our speaker from two weeks ago, they were our models. Bob would come up for workshops every few months. And when he did workshops, we did learning, we did discussion around tables, and in the evening, we'd be in someone's home. And he'd show us this imitatable way. He says, guys, it can be really lightweight. Here's their rule of thumb. If it takes more than 15 minutes to get ready for your missionary community to show up for your potluck, it, it's, that's too long. It's too heavy. Got to make it more lightweight. And I love that. Otherwise, you're spending hours, right, cleaning the bathroom and vacuuming everything. Sometimes we've actually, people, the first person who rings the bell, we're like, you know what? We didn't quite get the chairs set up. You can do that. They're downstairs. And, and someone else, can you grab all the stuff out of the cupboards, you know, the glasses? You know where they are. Because we're all doing this anyway. It's super lightweight. It's imitatable. And it really struck me when this happened. Someone was coming to our monthly potlucks, which I'll tell you about in a minute. And that person was watching how we were doing this. And after only the third time of coming, he said to me, this is easy. Anyone can do this. Which, you know, kind of felt a little hurtful. <laughs> but I thought I was doing such a good job. Like, anyone can do this. And then he said, can, I, can we do this in our house next, next month? I'm like, absolutely. And so we did. And it worked. And this person had not had much uh, social socialization in their home at all. This was a brand new thing. And it was just so cool to see how imitatable that that was. Something as everyday as hosting a meal is actually a key part of discipleship. And when it's done in an imitatable, lightweight way, others can learn from it and they can do it in a way that works for their home and for their personality. Some of us have one-bedroom apartments. It's going to look different than someone who's got a 5,000-square-foot home. That's okay. Still look for ways to be a spiritual family together and to host those gatherings. Now again, I want to recognize that although now is not the season for this, season, you know, in the same ways, it's going to be different, and we really want to emphasize that's important. But the season will come again when we can start doing this a lot more. Secondly, connecting with friends and neighbors. When we first gathered as a spiritual family on mission, there's one thing we knew, the particular group we had who responded to our invitation to be part of this. We looked around and realized we all know how to do Bible study really, really well. In fact, most of us had led many Bible studies. And we still do Bible studies. Please hear that. That's an important part of a spiritual family on mission. But we recognized the hardest thing for us is actually connecting with our friends and neighbors and coworkers in a regular way. We don't do that. And we especially don't do it together with a spiritual family. So we got to explore that. So we decided, okay, we're going to do a monthly potluck dedicated just to that, a monthly gathering. And we're going to tell people right up front, and we're just inviting anyone, whether they're followers of Jesus or not, doesn't matter. We're inviting everyone, and we're telling them up front, uh, bring your food, whatever you want to eat, and we're going to do three things. We're going to pray for the food, because we're going to be open about, about the fact that we follow God and we're grateful for what he's given us. We're going to eat the food. That's always a great part. And then we're going to share and get to know each other. That's it. No Bible study, nothing else. Really simple, but really powerful way for us to get to know our neighbors. And now we have neighbors and coworkers and, and our spiritual family all mixing together. And it's just wonderful. It feels like normal life, right? How did I miss this for so many years? There are ways to do normal life together, and it's an imitatable model. Many people in our missional community have hosted these potlucks in their homes over the last few years. And I think each one has done it in a way that works for them. And that's really important. 
since we won't be doing a lot of these probably for a while, we can look for other ways. Maybe it's not a food potluck kind of thing, but there's other ways to connect and gather. Maybe we're gathering in smaller groups. Maybe we're doing it, again, over the internet or whatever we're doing. Maybe we're doing works of service for our neighbors, right? Shoveling walks, uh, pushing out their bins for when the garbage is going to come and the recycling is going to come, checking to see if they're okay during this season, offering to do some shopping, just making sure things are good. Why don't we become known as the people that care the most about our neighborhood in ways that are appropriate and practical and do that as we can as a spiritual family? We can even swap stories over the phone if we want about how it's going in your neighborhood and what cool conversation did you have with someone last week. Here's our last point, leading a discipleship group. Now, Bob and others have been my teachers in this area as well. And we have benefited from a smaller discipleship group like Jesus had with the 12. And I've led lots of groups, but this one was different. And just for sake of time, I won't go into detail. But basically, we, we look at some material that challenges and stretches us to grow. By the way, we meet once a week for one hour, and it's not the whole missional community. It's only four or five of us that connect because it's an extra time. We have, we have our spiritual family that meet twice a month, and then this is a once a week for one hour, more intensive greenhouse kind of discipleship group. So we look at material, we ask the questions, what is God saying to me, and what's he inviting me to do about it? But the difference is this. When we do that in our service, and I'm glad we do, we'll do it tonight in a few moments. When we do it here, then we leave, right? And then we go off and we go home or we go out and grab a bite to eat, and pretty quickly it's kind of gone. But when you do it in a weekly group, and you actually share with each other what you think God's calling you to do, and then next week everyone's saying, so how did it go, Greg? Did you do what you sense God telling you to do? Well, pretty soon we get a whole lot more real about what we're actually going to say, right? And then we actually started doing the things that God was calling us to do. And if it wasn't working, we would listen again. Maybe I didn't hear God right. We were actually starting to see ourselves change, our insides, our attitudes, our connection with God, receiving more of God's love for us because we were actually putting ourselves in a position to grow in him. And that's what happens when you're challenged and when you follow through, you grow, and that's exciting. So this started changing us. And then someone, when we were done about nine months, we'd finished that material. Someone said, well, I can do this material. I can do this way of a discipleship group. And they started leading their own group using the same material, but with a whole different group of people. And now those people are going to learn how to do it. And some of them might say, I feel God calling me to start my own discipleship group. Sounds a bit like the Church of Acts, doesn't it? It's just wonderful to see this imitatable discipleship that's designed to grow and to multiply. As we wrap up, I want to tell you, I've told you these stories to give you some ideas for what this life of invitation and imitation can look like. But please hear me when I say, Sarah and I are on a steep learning curve still. We have not arrived at all. I feel like I'm still in early stages. Some of you, some of us in our church actually do this naturally and have for years. I'm just cluing in. So, so we've got a long ways to go. We're still learning. We still have challenges and setbacks in our missional community. We experiment all the time. We're far from perfect. But here's what I've discovered. I still want to lead our missional community in this because they don't need a perfect example, right? They already have one. His name is Jesus. <laughs> what they need is a living example, an imperfect but living example. So I can say to them without apology, follow me as I imperfectly follow Christ and let's figure this out together. And that's encouraging because then they've got people, we have one another, to walk along this path of discipleship and to, to learn together, to watch and learn from each other how to be a spiritual family on mission. Lastly, let's not forget where our authority and our power comes from. Listen again to what Jesus said to his disciples that day along the lake. Come, follow me, 
and I will show you how to fish for people. Right? It's not through our wisdom and our biblical knowledge. It's not through our experience and all of those things that we create a spiritual family that, of growing disciples who go out on mission together. Jesus is the one who does this. He's the one who changes people from the inside out. He's the one who empowers us day by day through his spirit to live this new kind of family way as we depend on him day by day. And this is my prayer for each of us, myself included, that his invitation to come and follow me will spark in us a greater desire to experience more of Jesus' way of life. So as we respond to this tonight, I want you to think about the way that Jesus discipled people, and especially his way of invitation and imitation. What stands out the most to you? What area do you see the greatest need for change? What area do you want to change? Perhaps it's this way of invitation, going beyond just meetings uh, on a weekly basis and opening up your life more to each other, giving each other greater access to your lives, experiencing more of the love and grace that flow when people learn to do life together in a healthy spiritual family. Perhaps it's actually the way of imitation, and that's grabbing your attention, learning how to live a life that others can actually imitate and inviting time, investing sorry, time and energy into a few people like Jesus did. Or maybe you're realizing, I'm not even sure I know fully how to be a, a spiritual family. I want to be a disciple of someone else who's doing this. I want to I join a spiritual family and learn from someone this way. Well, let's take a moment of silence and just ask those two questions and listen for what God says to you. And encourage you, if something comes to mind, jot it down. So God, what are you saying to each of us tonight? We're open to hearing. And what are you inviting us to do about that? Jesus, help us hear what you are saying to each of us today by your Spirit. Show us what might be holding us back from the more that you're inviting us into. Help us to trust you, to grab your hand, and just to take one step forward in this next day or week into whatever you're calling us into. Because when we do, there's breakthrough, there's fruitfulness, there's abundance. Keep showing us, Jesus, more and more how to live as spiritual families who follow your way and invite others to join our spiritual families and do the same. Thank you that you will do that. I want to invite you just to stand with me as we have our closing benediction together. Stand and receive this benediction from God's word. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, 
and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're welcome to come to the front for prayer. If you're online, you're welcome to let us know of a prayer request you have. We'd love to pray for you in that regard or even pray with each other if you're meeting together with someone else. Go in peace.